You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. Today's podcast is with Michael Chavez, uh, who just recently stepped down as the CEO of Corporate Education at Duke, but he's still involved in that program. Uh, his book, which is co-written with Sudanshu Pausuli, is called Rehumanizing Leadership, Putting Purpose Back in Business. He's a really great thinker and conversationalist. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the S.A.M.D. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Michael Chavez, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kelly. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. This book surprised me in many ways, in part, in part because it's very uncommon to find a serious business book that quotes people like Rumi, the poet David White, and Maya Angelou. Uh, but I think that's also part of the point, which is that to successfully lead human beings, you need to understand what motivates human beings. And that's something that artists have been doing and speaking to for eons, right? Exactly. And, and in fact, that is what we mean by rehumanizing leadership, that if we're going to lead humans and unlock their potential, which is really what leadership is about, then uh, we have to kind of reground ourselves and reconnect ourselves in the essence of humanity. And a lot of that has to do with creativity. A lot of that has to do with things that are not linear, not necessarily analytical. And I say a serious business book, and I mean it even though there's humor and other things in it, because you note that, quote, we need an urgent shift in thinking for our survival. And I, you, you mean that. That's not right? That's, that's absolutely. not hyperbole. No, absolutely. And I mean that both collectively and individually, because to a large extent, the organizational paradigms that most of us have inherited were based on a, a paradigm that's really no longer serving our purpose as a, as a, as a, as a, as a people. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, we've, yeah, it, and, it, and I, I've got to stop myself here because I also want to say that that paradigm that is basically largely mechanistic, largely dehumanizing, uh, largely about scale and efficiency and production capability uh, had its good sides uh, in the sense that it lifted billions of people out of poverty. It created value that, that allows us to enjoy the lives we enjoy, most of us enjoy today. It also created externalities that are harming us. Mm -hmm. And what's happening now is we're in this 
position where those externalities are actually starting to become the gating factor of our existence, such as, and this isn't news, right? This isn't, it's not just global warming, although that's the obvious one. It's also things like uh, social and mental health. It's also things like depletion of resources, pollution. Um, uh, And it's also about things like being able to create a forum where people can bring their whole selves to work. And when we can't do that, that becomes um, a limiter to our ability to flourish as, as people. So I think, I think the, the key point is it served a purpose, but we're now in this interesting part of history where we're in another revolution. And, you know, we keep talking about all these industrial revolutions. We're at, I think, number four right now, but I really think there's a fifth and it's a, it's a revolution of meaning for people. And we're, we encountered that so viscerally during COVID. And I think this is just uh, an example of, of us feeling that in a distilled format. It's so stunning to think that like Peter Drucker was talking about the problem with hierarchies 50 years ago, and yeah. we still haven't changed anything. We know that uh, standardized testing, for example, is not, you know, not a great way to relate to learning, like, you know, the the need to fail, right, in in learning. So all these, the the evidence, the science has been there, and yet we don't listen. Why? I mean, why are we so stuck in these these sort of rigid hierarchies? Well, you know, again, I I think it's partially because we, the world isn't uniformly this uh, uh, sunlit uplands of meaning that I'm trying to uh, paint a picture of, right? It's it's a messy mixture of things where, you know, parts of the economy, parts of business are still very much doing quite well with hierarchies. Some, yeah. uh, some aren't. Some parts even within a single business function quite well with, with hierarchies and some don't. You know, I, I like to step back to this picture that I have of an old uh, auto manufacturing plant that was taken in the 20s and one in the 20s and one in the 30s. And in both, you see this catwalk up above the um, production floor. And that catwalk was the mezzanine uh, and that led to this idea of mezzanine leadership or mezzanine supervision, right? It literally to see over uh, what people were doing. That was based on a paradigm of control, right? And so we needed control. We needed supervision. Um, by the way, we still have controls in organizations, right? I mean, with, after the global financial crisis, it was very clear that a lot of financial services companies needed more controls in place, right? So control is not in and of itself a bad thing, except it's a terrible thing when you over control when you're actually trying to unleash creativity, problem exploration, adaptation, improvisation. Yeah. That doesn't function well in an environment that's purely based on control. So leaders today have this really hard task, which is I've got to have control structures in place. Hierarchy is one example of those. Uh, other processes, compliance processes are another. Uh, authority, right? Um, I also have to know when to let that, to loosen that up. Right. Because if I don't loosen it up in certain instances, all I'm going to do is constrain the creativity that I ironically need to be able to navigate many of the biggest problems we're facing. So we've got this strange mixture of control and, and sort of less control. Uh, and, and, but, but here's the point. When we loosen up that control, when we, when we take the steps to loosen up that control, that's quite scary because it puts us at risk. And so a lot of organizations say, well, that's too much risk. So let's just go back to the thing we know, which is control, hierarchy, authority, all that stuff. Yeah, it doesn't work terribly well in this environment where we're dealing with a lot of uh, need to grapple with ambiguity. But um, we're, you know, we, we, sort of, we sort of 
have to rely on something is kind of the way the reasoning goes. And we don't know what the replacement idea is always. Our, our belief is a replacement idea, you know, is, is sort of to, to paraphrase the work of Michelle Gelfand at the University of Maryland. It's, it's, it's about replacing that looseness yeah. that we're trying to create to allow for this adaptation with a tightness at a different level. And the tightness is at the meaning level, shared values, shared purpose, shared vision, essentially shared clarity. So when we, when we let go of power and say, we're going to, we're going to let go of power, we got to replace it with something else. And one of the things that came up, it, it was an interesting conversation I had with Jeremy Blaine, one of uh, an educator who, who is in, in the UK and who wrote an amazing book called um, in the inner CEO. And I, I got the opportunity to write the forward for that book. And in the conversations that led up to the writing of that forward, it, it, it sort of dawned on me. And, and I wrote about this, that, that, we often talk about this absence of hierarchy almost as if it's sort of a democratic movement. But I think there's a, there's a problem with that analogy because democracy is about how power is distributed. And I think leadership is about how clarity is distributed. Yeah. So if we thought about distributed clarity, that's the thing that replaces hierarchy because I can trust people to go do what they need to do to be creative, to improvise, to come up with solutions that I as a leader could not even imagine because I'm not close enough to the problem. Uh, I have to create those guardrails that which is really a, in essence shared clarity in the organization. Yeah, we had Michelle on the podcast and I think that we talked about this as well. One of the things that... Um, amazes me as I've learned more about the sort of social sciences and, and leadership evidence and all that is when you look at the second city ecosystem, the way that we've created our shows for over 60 years. Yeah. And, and people often think, well, oh, you're just making it up. You're improvising. It's like the amount of practice and yes. skills building and all of that, that these people have had to do the sort of like rigid stuff that they've had to do in order to be completely free. Right. And the structure at second city is this two acts of scripted content with a third act that is improvised. That third act is where we play, we work with abundance, it's late night, we don't charge. It's like an innovation laboratory that then feeds into the shows. And it's like, you know, I, I often say to people, like, I think we're the only commercial theater that I know in the world uh, that is so successful that only does original work. No one, no one just does original work. That's, right. you know, so right. it, it's, it, but it is both things. It is that there's an intense amount of freedom and just, you know, very well-known structures. And then most importantly, everyone knows the rules. And that's, that's that distributed clarity I think you're talking about. That's it. It's, it's, it's um, freedom because. Yeah. Right. And so what's the because, right? So I think, I think, and this is why Michelle Gelfand's work is so interesting because yeah. we talk about organizations that are um, sort of tight, um, loose on the macros. You know, they don't have much shared clarity. There's not a lot of, people just rely on instructions, kind of, and, and that's a dehumanized world, right? Mm -hmm. Again, dehumanized here sounds bad, but there's some good things about dehumanization because what it does is it, it, it removes human bias. It creates a mechanistic approach. It's more efficient. We have analytical rigor. We, um, we, we, we are data-driven, uh, That, but doesn't work terribly well when you actually need to do what you're talking about in second city, right? You need, you need to replace those instructions, that script, if you will, to use your analogy yep. with something else. So if you take the script away, you can't just have a free for all, right? right, right, right. You, you have to have something else. And that something else is replacing that loose, tight organization with a tight, loose, tight at the top, loose at the bottom, loose, no script, but rules. Few, not many, 
right? Yeah. That's the other thing is that we're talking here about organizations focusing on three, four, five things that, that have to be narrated and positioned and embedded over and over and over again. The sense of shared values that are behavioral, not just single words, but actually have descriptions that are behaviors, uh, a shared sense of purpose, which is why are we here? What are we here for? What is our value? What's our enduring value that we're always seeking to, to produce? What's our relationship with the world and society? Shared vision. What's our, what does success look like? What outcomes are we after? And, uh, and, and, you know, to some extent strategy, although strategy is a tricky one, it kind of tends to be in the realm of more, it's become something that's less reliable because it changes a lot more often. So it's, it, it doesn't always function as one of those, those anchors that we have to create that shared clarity. Sometimes it does. It sort of depends on how organizations position it. But oftentimes I find most of the CEOs I'm talking to are saying that's, that's actually kind of, you know, it's not working to align people. Uh, it's working. We need it, but it's not doing the same work that those other things are. So anything that builds shared clarity is, now becoming the currency of leadership as the external world becomes more ambiguous. And um, uh, my, my, my colleague, Elspeth Johnson, who just wrote an amazing book called Step Up, Step Back, where she studied change in large organizations and teams that were able to navigate it. Uh, they, they had this, they, they didn't just look at those big things, those big assets that give us shared clarity. They brought it down to the team level right? Mm -hmm. They were able to say, why is the team here? Why is this work important? That's a purposeful statement, even though it's not about the corporate purpose necessarily. They were able to say, you know, what are the outcomes? How should we behave in this work? What's our approach? Uh, and that leaders in those, in, those, in, those in those change environments, which are inherently ambiguous, were able to always anchor in those sorts of things. So it's, it works on multiple levels, we're finding. In fact, she has a quote that I, I quote her all the time on this, which is the following, that if external ambiguity is the new normal, internal ambiguity is the new enemy. Hmm. That's great. Right? And yep. I, I, I think that's, that's really the story of rehumanizing leadership, which is we've got to create shared clarity, and the shared clarity has to be at a level of humanity, meaning things that are authentic to us as people and things that we can all align around because we automatically share those sorts of values. We automatically share things that are, I mean, purpose is fundamentally about service. It's about contribution. And we have an inherent motivation as people to be able to contribute. When you look at people who, who, who are burned out, for example, a lot of research on that going on now, especially with COVID, but Tons of great stuff has come out, especially in healthcare around doctor burnout. Mm -hmm. uh, this is talked about in that great book, Compassionomics. Um, oh, yeah, we had those guys on. But you had them on, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, they talk about burnout. It's not just overwork, right? It's also the sense of dehumanized, sort of depersonalized, uh, depersonalization, meaning I feel separated from the people that I'm, I'm, I'm sort of serving. Uh, and and um, it's in addition to that, it is um, not, you know, it's feeling that I'm not contributing or a sense of lack of personal uh, impact that that's the, that's, that's really important because if I, if I'm in a purposeful organization, I'm automatically, I am automatically, not only do I know why we are as, here as a, as a, as an organization. So I know how we're impacting the world, our customers, whoever it is society, but I also know 
in a purposeful organization, how I as an individual contribute to that broader purpose. So it, that's what an embedded purpose really looks like is that I see our purpose. I know what it means. I also know why I'm here. I know why I'm on my team. I know why I'm valued. I know what my contribution is. Now, it's not a, you know, that's, a, that's always got fuzzy edges to it. I'm always discovering that, but at least I have something. And this is one of the most remarkable things we discovered about this idea of contribution, clarity of contribution, is, is an intense motivator. And as you know, Dan Pink wrote about that in his book, Drive. We talked to him before we started writing the book, and he said, you know, Michael, it's really interesting. We, we were sort of disappointed in the way we treated personal purpose in that book because we didn't go far enough. There is this amazing concept. So we, we wrote about it, which was the great news. Um, and what we wrote about was this idea that individuals, when they have clarity of purpose, they feel motivated and they feel creative and they feel collaborative. Uh, but that personal purpose comes through an understanding not just of my life purpose, which is a pretty tall order to try to accomplish, right? You know, and it's hard to work with in organizations because everyone's on a very different journey. But it was this idea that Dan Pink opened our eyes to, which is he had, he had a lot of interviews of people who said, look, I, I, my life purpose is something to do with, for example, saving lives. But I'm working in a chemical company in accounts receivable. Okay, so what do I do? Uh, and, and he found those people who were motivated with that dichotomy were ones who could posit what they were doing in terms of contribution to others. They, right. they could say, look, my life purpose might be saving lives, but I'm just going to help my team on this project. I'm going to increase, help them increase cash flow. That's why I'm here. I'm here to do that, right? And we called that, he called that, and we call that small P purpose. Not the big life purpose, why I'm on the planet, but why I'm here right now. And we found some other interesting examples of organizations using that. American Express is one. They had a habit of asking newly hired executives, sort of coaching them to onboard them from the outside. These are outside executives coming in saying, do you know why the box you're about to occupy is on the org chart? Mm -hmm. First question. Second question. Do you know why you're in it? Hmm. And that to me distilled this idea of personal contribution, personal clarity. So shared clarity is, yeah, we have shared clarity about why this organization is here. We're here to service customers. We're here to create this value. You know, Duke C, we say we're here to help leaders become force multipliers for positive change. That's great. But do I, if I'm on a team sitting in our offices in Durham, North Carolina, do I understand why I'm here? Do I understand what my contribution is? Do I understand why I'm valued uniquely on this team that I'm working on, on this project? That's, a, that's, that's where you get embedded values. And so I think it's that role. And I'm, I'm sure you're connecting to this from the perspective of, 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 of the, improvisational theater, right? Yeah. I got to kind of have a sense of what my deal is when I go into that, uh, that, that, that interaction mm -hmm. so that I know kind of what to do when I don't know what to do. Yeah. Well, you, you, you know that the person across from you is there to save you. That's right. That's one of the shared agreements. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking when you were talking about that previous quote about Francis Frey and Ann Morris's book unleashed, and there's a great quote in there. And I think it's, um, the future of work, uh, uh, is based on the gift of each other's transformation, right? Giving each other the gift. And this is that reciprocal. Um, and this also makes me think of what I give talks a lot. And I talk about psychological safety and, and, and people like, well, what if, you know, what if the boss is terrible? And I'm like, well, that's a problem. Right. I said, but, but if your team 
and your team leader is okay, you're probably going to do all right. So I, I thought I thought it was interesting when you talked about the sort of team essence, because we, we really are talking about this big P, and then yes. you've got the team, and then you've got the individual, but all of them do, you know, connect at different points and can break apart or come together. That's exactly right. And that's what we found, you know, because our, our query around purpose, which is not the only thing the book is about, but we spent a lot of time talking about purpose in that book because that's, you know, subtitles, putting purpose back into business. But our query was, you know, we had heard a lot of people in the business literature say, you got to have a purpose. You got to have shared clarity. You got to have, okay. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, I had a lot of clients who were saying, well, we've got purpose. We are purposeful. And so, but there was a sense that there wasn't, it wasn't operating that, that way that these, these writers had suggested. So our question was, how, how does it work? What, what, if you, if you have a, let's just say you have a great purpose statement, how does that work? How does it not work? When does it not work? What, what's causing it to not work? And what we found is like a lot of things, it's not magic, right? You don't just write a purpose statement put it on the lobby wall and, you know, hope for the best. It doesn't work that way. In fact, that can even have a, a negative effect because it can create cynicism if you don't actually do the other levels of embedding. So we found that purpose is a multi-level process. It's, you know, it, and there are rules to it. You can't just freeform it. You can't just wing it. It has to be an auth- a, 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 essentially a process of excavating your, your shared authenticity and your operating capability. So it's got some hard edges to it when it's, when it's done right is what we found. Uh, but that embedding process is the part that's really sort of non-negotiable. If you don't embed it, it doesn't exist is kind of what we're saying. So our job is as leaders is to take purpose off the lobby wall, right? And we've got to put it into people's heads, hearts, and hands, and we have to use it to make actual decisions. Because if we don't use it as a form of decision-making, then it doesn't come into relief for people. It doesn't live it doesn't have that meaning that we hope it means. It just feels like an aspiration. And so it might be a good start, but it isn't yet embedded. You know, when, when one of my, my banking clients actually took their purpose statement, which was really about communities, um, and they have a strong emphasis on community financial inclusion in the work they do, but they also think that's really good business. Uh, they got clear on exiting industries as, cl- you know, exiting those clients that they felt weren't really um, supportive of community health and thriving, mm-hmm. which is kind of their core issue. Now that stands out as a very, very concrete action that happens as a result of, of purpose. This, this is ANZ Bank in, in, in Australia, one of the big four. Mm-hmm. You know, they took very hard decisions to say, well, if we're going to say that our purpose is about shaping a world where people and communities thrive, then is this client helping us to thrive? Now that wasn't that was what's cool about it is that wasn't just simply CEO said, okay, let's now, now that we have this purpose, now let's look at all the things that are inconsistent with it. The purpose created guardrails for people to raise questions mm-hmm. that entered the conversation with senior execs saying, you know, if you're really tr- serious about this purpose, what about this, this industry over here? Should we actually be banking them? And that led to a series of conversations, a series of debates, not easy ones, Finally, with a decision, yeah, we probably should exit that that industry, you know, over time, and, and and they did. So I I think, you know, I think that's what this shared clarity gets you is it gets you, uh, it doesn't get a, a marching order that's automated. It, what it gets you is human debate, discovery, conversation, uh, further clarification, building on that initial meaning, which which is why it becomes an evolving living concept. But until that process gets started, 
our, our view is it sort of doesn't yet exist in the organization. You don't yet have it until you get people actually saying, okay, we've said this. So now what about this? And when that happens, uh, you, you have full debate, by the way, you might have the debate for a long time, but as long as you have the debate, you've got uh, a better chance of having people being driven by purpose, being motivated, being clear about why they're there uh, and being able to give you discretionary effort and, and frankly, creativity. This makes me think of one of our early conversations on the podcast with, with, with uh, Reverend Dr. Sam Wells. So I don't know. Do you know Sam? No, I don't personally know. He, uh, I'd, be, so I'd love to hear the connection. He's the vicar of St. Martin in the Fields. Um, and he might have been Duke Divinity. Is there such a thing as Duke Divinity? Uh, yes, I have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We actually have a couple of Duke Divinity people in our organization. So, so, so this was a while ago, and he wrote a book called The Drama of Christian Ethics. Or, or the uh, um, uh, yeah, the drama of Christian ethics, but it's about ethics and improvisation because he took an right. improvisational class and he's like, this is it. And and the thing the thing that he sort of ties it to is an improvisation. You have these sets of rules, mm-hmm. and so uh, uh, in improvisation, you're reflexively doing the right thing. Yeah, which is an eth- that's what you that's your goal in terms of like an ethical uh, framework. Um, and it's it's interesting because it. That is, that's hard to get to. This stuff that we're talking about is not easy at all. And I, one thing I did want to mention to you too was I love in the book that you, you guys clearly have like these like brain crushes on various academics. <laughs> uh, and one of them is Vivian Ming. Um, yes. Like, like you can just tell you're like, and, and for good reason, I want to quote uh, her here, which was quote, human capital is becoming a toxic asset. Uh, and she goes on to say, if we don't change the way we build people, they will be vastly less than we think they are, end quote. Mm-hmm. Wow. There's yes. a lot to unpack there. It, well, you, you only need five minutes with, with Vivian and you're, you're kind of, you know, I don't know how, but I've got, you know, within five minutes, I've got more pages of notes than I thought was possible than in yeah. five minutes and talking to her. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, her, I, I love her purpose. She talks about her purpose is building better humans, right? It's this idea of, uh, the untapped human potential that we are all grappling with. And in, in, to a large extent, I think that's the biggest organizational challenge we have in the, in the, in the century ahead, uh, which is how are we going to unleash and unlock the human potential that we know exists with a legacy where that unleashing and unlocking was actually tightly controlled and monitored against very, very specific objectives. So we've essentially created organizations that say, no, no, I only want this part of you. And I only want, and you know, this is, this is a very, you know, we've just finished pride month and it's, for me, it's very interesting to think about the degree to which that transactional relationship flies in the face of the whole person. Mm-hmm. Right. When we get the whole person, we get so much more creativity. And, and, you know, you can look at it analytically and say, well, that shouldn't matter. The person should be great at what they do without being sort of engaged with the whole person. And I, I, you know, I just don't think that's possible. We, we actually, we, the science is getting so much better. We know that we know that people are more creative under certain circumstances. One of which is they feel wholly engaged. They feel valued. Um, they feel, they feel that they're being, in, and as you know, in psychological safety, they feel that they're being invited into a necessary discovery and exploration together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and those, by the way, it sounds nice. Those are really hard to do. As you mentioned, this, talk about difficulty. You were just mentioning how difficult this is, this sort of ethical conundrum that, um, that um, 
you, you were just highlighting. It's, it's, it's hard work. It's not saying, here's our purpose statement. I'm going to go close my door and, and let you all get on with it. That's just disengagement. What we know is leaders who do a good job of framing, leaning into these questions, leaning into unlocking this human potential by asking these questions, by being creating psychological safety, by creating shared clarity, um, that's, ex- that's really hard, hard work. But getting back to my colleague Elspeth Johnson's findings, that is the work for the leaders who are successful in driving change, sustainable change, not just flash in the pan change. Uh, they were, they conceived their identity went along with it. They conceived of their work as being about holding these difficult, exploratory, open-ended conversations, holding these questions. Um, and, and it's not, it, you know, and it, it's, it's concrete. It's, you, you're using certain anchors to, to help you. You're going back to those anchors. You don't necessarily have the answer either. You're saying, well, let's see what our purpose says. I'm not sure either. Let's, let's use it as a guidepost. What do you think? Um, it, it's, not only, it's not only hard, it's also initially disappointing because your purpose statement, your vision statement, whatever it is, isn't giving you the instruction set. And we're sort of addicted to those instructions in organizations. We've been, we've been, um, we, we've been brought up on uh, clarity means give me the instruction. Uh, and we hear it every day in any organization where our people say, well, can you just tell me what my job is, right? Mm. Tell me what, can, I, I have a question about role clarity. By the way, for me, that's the yellow, that's the yellow flag, right? Okay. Because usually those questions are actually not about role clarity. They're usually about broader clarity. The question often is really a, a restatement of, I'm not sure how I can add value here. I'm not sure what my contribution is here. And I, I urge leaders to always look at those as, as offers. And someone says, hey, what's my role? As an offer to have a broader conversation about contribution, value, et cetera. We do this wonderful exercise. You've probably done it too with um, some of our clients, that has ter- which we couple with a further exploration of individual leadership purpose. Um, this sort of small P purpose. And um, uh, what we do is we ask them to just sort of draw their superpower. What's your superpower? You know, because most people don't, we spend so much time in organizations mechanistically trying to fix problems, fix people, fix the shortcomings. We do it to ourselves. Uh, I need to build this skill. I got to fix it. I got this, I've got this gap. I got to fix it, right? I've got the shortcoming. I got to fill that up. Even training, even, even education, our world is all about oftentimes is framed as, well, you've got this shortcoming, you've got to fix it, got to top them up. But, but that's, that's unfortunate because what, we're really, what we really need to be doing is uh, moving out of the fix-it mode and into this exploration mode, which is uh, not about transacting a solution but is about staying with the discomfort and lack of clarity for long enough to be able to see what emerges. Right? And this is why fundamentally we need practice and yeah. we don't do it in business. No. And listen, you talk, we have an exercise that we use uh, often for storytelling, but you can see it used in a variety of contexts and it's called 60, 30, 10. And so I'll say to you, tell me what you do in 60 seconds. Now tell me what you do in 30 seconds. Now tell me what you do in 10 seconds. Yeah. And it really requires you, you know, to sort of hone and it's good for pitching and it's good for, for a, a lot of other things. We had Ash Carter on uh, the podcast. His wife was taking a second city workshop. We did that. And she's like, Oh, that's what you have to do when you go to the oval for Obama. 
you got to be prepared to tell your thing, really important thing, 60, 30, or 10, depending on how busy it is. But if you think about as a human being, if I do that a lot in these different contexts, I'm going to be prepared uh, to deal with whatever gets thrown at me, except where in business do we practice? We, we might yeah. take a workshop once or twice a that's, year. That's that. So we, you know, one of the things we are trying to do with this exercise is renegotiate our relationships with ourselves Yes. to say, all right, my relationship with myself isn't a fix it mechanistic dehumanized approach anymore, or it's not only that I'm going to humanize it and humanizing. It says, what am I good at? How much time do senior executives, we ask them this, how much time do senior executives actually spend in their career talking about what their strengths are, what they're great at, what they think they're great at and what other people see in them as being great at. Mm-hmm. And the answer is people at first, when they do this exercise, are very uncomfortable. It's like, well, yeah. I'm not, you know, that seems arrogant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the problem is we're all clever people and clever people are used to fixing problems. And actually we've got to reframe what clever means. Clever sometimes means building clarity about where you bring your best self and your whole self yeah. and, and, and seeing that as a strength. So uh, this whole person thing, I think, is you know something that Ed Shine shared with us when we did an interview with him and, and wrote about it in our magazine dialogue, and it was it was sort of this this epiphany that we had, you know, he had in this work that he does on organizational culture that the organizational cultures have to change their human model, which is moving from a world in a mechanistic world of transactional humanity. I you know, in fact, we even call it compensation, right? That's yeah. ultimate in transactions. You do this for me, I'll compensate you because that was obviously depleting. So we're going to fix it, right? With a compensation, right? Uh, and, and we got to move it to whole person because we're, that's what we need and that's what we're asking for. And by the way, that's what people generally want, especially Gen X, uh, Gen Y and Gen Z, especially, right? I mean, it started a little bit with Gen X, but, but our generation was too small to have a voice for that. So then it, you know, kind of trickled down, but then Gen Y and Gen Z have been outstanding at having greater, at least initial fluency in this idea of purpose, clarity, contribution, meaning. Um, And I think that's because they grew up in a world where that was really necessary. The world was much more complex. So it, it, it surfaced a lot earlier and they're better connected to each other and they have these conversations. And so I think we've got a lot of work to do to renegotiate our relationship, not just with people in the organization, but with ourselves. All right. So at the moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story. I do want to note that I have like three pages of notes and I've asked like note, like two of them, <laughs> I think, which is okay. a great sign for the interview. I'm well over prepared and didn't need any of it. Um, but you have a, a lovely section where, where you're talking about navigating complexity. Um, and you say, quote, the 20th century, in fact, as a love affair with straight lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so talk to us about this linearity because I think it's pretty, pretty important. Yeah. So oftentimes we ask people, what's the opposite of complexity? And everyone says simplicity. And that's not exactly right from a mathematical standpoint. It's really uh, because complexity doesn't just mean complicated. It means that it's completely emergent. It means that uh, new, it's unpredictable. How, because you've got different, you've got multiple forces uh, that are interacting with each other in unpredictable ways. Uh, they're all different. There are many of them and they're all connected. And that's pretty much the definition of, of, of sort of the description of a com- complex system. It has qualities. The qualities of complexity are, are emergence, meaning it creates new forms with it's unpredictable, which means we can't necessarily see what's going to happen. And so that all flies in the face of linearity because in a linear world, everything's pretty predictable and stable and measurable, by the mm-hmm. way. 
And, you know, I, I have a finance MBA, you know, it, which was all about building tools for building analytics, science and measurability into business systems. Uh, but it, and those are still relevant, by the way, I'm not here to say those we're throwing those out the window, but we cannot only rely on those. And the problem is organizations are only relying on those tools. We have to also look at the fact that because those only really work in a linear environment where we know the function, right? We can see the function. We can see the slope. We can know exactly where it's headed. We can predict because it's pretty linear. It's pretty, you know, you can see it at the trend. I was taught in consulting in the 1990s, the trend is your friend. Boy, it sure is up until it's not. Yes. Right. And so now we're finding ourselves in a situation where more often than not, it's not. So that's because the trend is all over the place. So what do we do? Well, we can't predict it. So we have to replace linear thinking with the word you use, which is preparation for nonlinearity. Yeah. Preparation for exponential change, for unpredictability. That's why it becomes so important in organizations to have clarity, which is not the same thing as certainty, because clarity is about the few enduring things we know will always be true in all circumstances, right? Just like an improv, right? Yeah. These are always true. Uh, and that they will not tell me the answer, but they will be an anchor for us to debate and discover and uncover the answer, right? And so that's the, that's the, that's the mode we're in. Now that, like I, like I said, that's, that's disappointing, right? A lot of people find it disappointing because people come to you and say, well, what do we do, boss? Boss says, I don't know. And so the, rightly so, right? And so people feel disappointed. I, as a boss, feel disappointed. So to some extent in this world of nonlinearity, uh, leadership has become about disappointing your people, but at a rate that they can absorb, right? <laughs> so you've got to kind of, how do you do that? What does that mean? Well, that means you're not, totally disappointing by throwing your hands up and saying, I don't know. You're saying, look, I don't know the answer to this, but here's what we do know. Here's what we're clear on. Here's why we're here. Here's what we want to have happen as a result of this. Now let's explore together how we can create experimentation, improvisation to go and discover that in this new world that we've never seen before, because the nonlinear world is basically a world without known answers. Yep. It's maybe has some answers or some ways forward, but we don't know them yet because if we so did, the, uh, then it would be probably unknown linear. unknowns that the late Donald Rumsfeld was talking about. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's the unknown unknowns, right? It's the, it's which he, you know, he tried to clarify in that, in that press conference, but sort of didn't quite, but in, anyway, it's it a great makes sense now. I, you know, he just passed away and he, they replayed he, it. And I'm like, actually that makes sense. He was ahead of his time. About. Yeah. He was ahead of his time. And, and, and I think, I think the, this, um, this, uh, sort of leader's framework for decision-making is the, is the title of the article. And it, and it, and it, it talks about the, you know, we've got simple world, which is where, you know, we have a problem and I have an answer and the boss transacts that answer and fabulous. Everyone's happy. Then we have a complicated world where, you know, boss, we have a problem. Well, I don't know the answer to that. By the way, this is all based on the assumption that leadership and hierarchy was all about the accumulation of knowledge as you went up, right. And expertise, which that's no longer true or is no longer as true. Um, uh, you know, complicated world boss got a problem boss says, well, I don't know the answer, but we know, we know people who can help us on this. We know we can get help by the way. Consultants love this world, right? It's a good one. Uh, cause you know, don't worry. We'll, 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 we'll apply expertise that you may not ha have. <clears throat> then you go into this trans transition into the complex world 
and the chaotic world. And these are a world where nobody has the answer. We don't really even know the problem. Not really. In fact, we've probably got to spend a lot of time on framing the problem and not assuming that we know the problem and leap to solutioning. So the problem in that complex world is when you take a linear approach and you say, all right, got it. Here's the problem. Let's go fix it. Uh, it may not work. In fact, it may make it worse. Mm-hmm. So we've got to step back and say, do we understand the nature of the problem? And that takes a lot of discovery. That takes a lot of, of, of leaning into pattern recognition. That takes a lot of messy, complex creativity that takes, actually, sometimes it just takes moving forward with a mini decision so that you can uncover the nature of the system, you know, sure. to try to cycle through experimentation. And then, and then, you know, and then see what you're learning, which means in a nonlinear world, knowledge is less important because it doesn't give you the answer. Learning is more important. Yeah. Which means that experimentation is more important than our existing knowledge. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, that's what we do. So, so, you know, when we recognized that improvisation required divergent thinking, when we we understood what divergent thinking was, Mm -hmm. you start to look at some of these exercises, you're like, oh, that that's practice in divergent thinking. So, and this one uh, transferred virtual really nicely, which is, uh, it's called point and untell. And we were able to pop up images and your only job is to shout out what that thing isn't. Um, And very, very difficult for people to see a red ball and say cow very, very difficult, but they practice enough and they start to be able to do it. And it's like, yeah, you're, you're utilizing this. And it's this idea of like, it's why bad ideas are so useful. They're right. so useful because they can get you to really novel outcomes. I think it's a, in a nonlinear world, I think a great exercise is for leaders to say, what is this not? Do we know what this isn't? Because we probably do have an answer to that, which yes. weirdly gives us more clarity on it. Right. So when COVID was happening, right, you know, what isn't this would have been a great conversation for a lot of organizations to have. What is this not? You know, it's not not SARS. It's not the flu. Yeah. 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 You're right. It's not the flu. Okay. We've had protocols. By the way, we have, we had protocols for flu in our, in our organization. We had, you know, when we had that first flu pandemic about 10, 12 years ago, Mm -hmm. this isn't that. Okay. (laughs) What is it? You know, I think, I think, uh, I think it's a great way of, because what you're doing in a world of, of, of nonlinearity is you're looking for anchors that are enduring. Yeah. You're not trying to solve the quote, solve the problem because you can't not yet. So what you are looking for are points that are clarity points that are unlikely to move. And that gives you these guardrails within which to discover what is the nature of the system. Now it's, it's still dissatisfying because it doesn't have, it's not the same time scale we're used to. Sometimes it takes years to figure those things out. But what if one of the things we, one of the things we de- we definitely know is that organizations that are able to endure, right, are ones who combine have this weird combination between sort of the more traditional aspects of organizations, which are you know things like Ari Dehus wrote about this in 1997, actually in a book, wonderful book called The Living Company. You know, there are companies that are able to have. Uh, enough financial conservatism to be able to fund their growth. They're also, they also have a very strong persona, purpose, identity, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But those are found in a lot of companies, but not always with the next two characteristics, which are they're very sensitive to their outside world and they pick up weak signals very easily, which my colleague Rita talk, talks about a lot, as you know. And they're also able to um, have a great deal of tolerance for eccentricity 
inside the organization, meaning they can handle this kind of quirky questioning that can go on, that this kind of odd spitballing of ideas and avoid this prejudgment or immediately saying that won't work. They kind of go, okay, that's interesting. Let's hold that. Let's discover it, right? They're willing to experiment. In other words, they're willing to improvise. Now, the first two characteristics you find in a lot of companies, without the second two, those companies become brittle and die. The second two characteristics you often find without the first two, those ones need some sort of funding or plan to be able to grow, right? Or some sort of need to merge with someone because they're not going to have enough money to be able to take advantage and, 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 and uh, take advantage of that capability. So the really interesting magic is what happens when you get this combination of sort of steadfastness, analysis, uh, clarity, along with this curiosity, engagement, experimentation. And so that's, that's, I, I think it's, it's fascinating that that book was written in 1997 to me because I think it says it's so relevant today. But this was something done by the Shell planning department, you know, hmm. with, which was able to do this great research and they kind of wrote it down. And it was, I, I think it's really, really relevant today. All right. We, we could seriously talk all afternoon, but I'm going to uh, wrap it up and ask you for a yes and story. So in improvisation, we say that, you know, if you're making a scene out of nothing, you get nowhere by saying no. And actually, yes doesn't get you that far. We like to say you say yes and you affirm and contribute in order to explore and heighten. Do you have a yes and story for us? Yeah, I do. It's actually, um, and my, my colleagues, Christine and Amanda on this call will, will, will hopefully connect with it. You know, when, when lo- not just the p- pandemic happened, but when lockdown happened, I, I happened to be in London when I watched London slowly close shut down, you know, day after day, it, it started to close. And I realized that flights back to the States were drying up. I had lived in London for five years. So I was, I was fine with, you know, I, I knew the place very well. And I was kind of like navigating it. I had a lot to do that week. It looked like the numbers weren't as bad as they were, as they, as they obviously turned out to be. So it, the trip was, you know, I kept in place, but it was really getting quite bad. And this was in March of 2020. And so, um, here I am the CEO of an, of an organization that, um, is basically 98% driven by face-to-face interactions yep. with, 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 with our clients. And so, um, okay, so as that's happening and we're watching client after client push their programs out to some sort of indefinite future or cancel them, um, we had sort of before us a big, a big unknown challenge. I mean, a very specific version of the pandemic, which was what, what the heck do we do now? And it's interesting because improvisation was on my mind. As you know, we use a lot of improvisation in a lot of our learning and development programs. And, um, and it's for this issue of the ability to kind of resist the temptation to say no and to kind of hunker down and say, well, let's just, you know, let's, you know, I could have spent that week on the phone with clients, convincing them to keep their programs in place. Right. Um, and I decided, and I almost, and I did start that, to be honest with you, I started going, Hey, wait a minute, you know, it's okay. But, and I, and we weren't ready quite to be able to start talking to clients about pivoting their programs to an, in a, a virtual, by the way, we're now 99% virtual right now at this point okay. in time. So we, we were successful in doing that. Um, and it happened in less than six months that we had that capability, but that time we didn't have it really quite shared and formulated. So. Um, I got on the phone with, with my colleagues and said, look, our clients are not doing anything. We've just had a bunch of programs cancel. In fact, I was going to be on one for one of those days that I was in London. And I said, okay, well, what can we do? 
what, you know, this is, these are the, you know, I had to spend some time with myself saying, these are the cards I've been dealt. Okay. Now what, right? What do you want to do? And uh, what we decided to do is we all got together and said, let's talk about leading in crisis. I'm like, okay, what do we know about leading in crisis? We don't know. Actually, we do know. It had, it, ironically, this actually had to do with improv. Yeah. One of the things we did is we searched and searched and searched and said, what's a good improv frame for, for, for coping in this crisis that we don't, aren't necessarily experts in, but we're co-exploring with our clients. Can we create a webinar on that this week, like this week, right? And can we market it and can we get people to attend it? And actually we could because we thought, well, maybe people are just home not doing anything. So let's try. So we got on this kind of last minute marketing push. And within a week, we had our largest attended webinar ever. Mm. on leading in crisis, a topic we really didn't know that much about, at least not in the way that we formulated it. We did a little research. We found some great stuff, pretty, not necessarily totally recent. Um, there's a wonderful uh, article written by Diane Kutu in Harvard Business Review about resilience. Yeah. And um, we sort of reshaped it into this idea of anti-fragility. But we got on, we talked about this, this idea of improv. And we said, look, there's, the webinar was essentially about the three things you need to be resilient in your organizations. One is you got to sort of acknowledge the cards that have been dealt to you. Mm-hmm. Two, you've got to anchor in some sort of meaning. What is meaningful about this? Why is this meaningful? Why? It matters because we want to keep our people safe. We want to do this in a way that still helps us fulfill our purpose. We want to kind of, you know, uh, uh, make this an opportunity to learn about our business. And, and then you have to just say yes and a lot. So this is a yes and story about yes and, but the point is it was the fastest thing we ever did as a team to get this webinar launched. And it had a huge impact because what it allowed us to do was go into sort of for this period of time, we went into the webinar business where our clients were asking us for, Hey, can you do that again, but make these tweaks to it? Hey, can you do something on leading, leading in crisis and double click on that part on, on meaning or double click on that part on improv. So it opened up a whole new opportunity for us with our clients. And by the way, our clients wanted to do stuff, but they couldn't do it anymore. So they were like, if you can do that again, maybe we do some more of that. Maybe we make it uh, uh, longer. Um, it, 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 but the emotionally, the hardest part about that for all of us was resisting the temptation to say, no, we can't do that. It's, you know, we usually need four weeks to market a webinar, five weeks, six weeks, Uh, and saying, no, let's just try it. I mean, what's the cost? I wasn't busy, right? It was like, you know, so I kind of said, well, all right, let's, let's try it. And by the way, I might, it might be terrible, but we've got to do something and we've got to communicate to the world and to our clients that we're, we're in this with you. And that we care about it, and we don't have all the answers yet, but we're gonna we're gonna discover it with you. So, that was one of the most satisfying yes ends because it was collaborative. It took a, it took a village. We all said yes, and we all had this moment where all we wanted to do was say no. Mm. Can't be done. You know, this is just not how we do things. We usually need because you know you want to do it right. You want to do it with prep. You want to do it with the right marketing. You want to have the right slides. You want to make sure you've got the right speakers. And we didn't have any of that. We had me. We had a week. We had uh, some slides I threw together and a couple of really interesting pieces of research that we dug up and said, can we slap this together and make this into something that will be meaningful for people and be authentic about that? And we did. And it, and it worked, not only worked, but it probably worked better than anything we've done. We had done up to that point in terms of, of, of some of our webinars. So I, I thought it was an amazing um, example of a team basically kind of going, okay, this is where we are. This is looking bad. This is not only looking bad for the world and for people dying, but it's looking terrible for our business. This is possibly 
existential for us. We might go out of existence because of this pandemic. What do we do? How do we not worry about that and do something meaningful? And that, that was um, not just, it wasn't, I wish I could say it was me saying, let's frame it this way. It wasn't, it was the whole organization kind of automatically knowing because we had shared clarity about why we're here on the planet. We're here to create, help leaders become force multipliers for change. Okay, what does that mean now? It means that we should be talking to them about crisis. That's what it means. And uncovering for them and helping them to co-discover this with us about what it means for this particular crisis. So uh, it was a th- kind of thrilling in hindsight, but at the time I can tell you, uh, hearts were racing, cortisol was flowing, and, uh, but we got through it. And it was, it was um, a good lesson, I think, for all of us about the importance of yes and. The book is called Rehumanizing Leadership, Putting Purpose Back into Business. Michael Chavez, thank you for coming on the show. Kelly, thanks so much for having me. This was a ball, and I hope we can do it again. Getting to Yes And is produced by The Second City, Second City Works, and WGN Radio. It's also produced by Elif Garris, with help by Mike Farinacchio and Colleen Fahey. The music that you hear that intros and outros the program is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you want to get more information on The Second City, you can reach us at www.secondcityworks.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
survive.